Take your holiday as seriously as British Airways Holidays takes your holiday. So ditch your desk, set your out-of-office on, and unwind on the white sandy beaches of the Dominican Republic. With an all-inclusive, family-friendly break at the Grand Palladium Palace Resort and Spa. Or luxurious adult-only getaway at the TRS Turquesa Hotel. Book now with a low deposit at ba.com slash palladium. T's and C's apply at all protected. I'm John Golia. And I'm Greg Fife, And we are the, the Flight, Flight Safety, Safety Detectives. Detectives. We're just two guys who have spent most of their career with the National Transportation Safety Board investigating aircraft disasters and aviation safety issues all over the world. Yep, and this podcast is where we talk about everything from accidents, airplane technology, to the big business of aviation. We live and breathe aviation. My co-host John has been in the aviation business for more than 60 years. He was the first and only airframe and power plant mechanic to get a presidential appointment to the National Transportation Safety Board. And Greg is a former air safety investigator and go-team captain for the NTSB. He's investigated everything that flies worldwide since he started his career 40 years ago. And on top of that, he is a living legend of aviation inductee. So between John and myself, we have over 100 years of aviation safety experience. It's time to buckle up because it's going to be wheels up. Let's get this show in the air. John and I are at the Rocky Mountain Metropolitan Airport out in Broomfield, Colorado. This is where my office is. And occasionally you'll hear some interesting background noise, which is airplanes, helicopters, and everything in between flying in and out of the airport. So uh, that'll give us a little airport ambiance for this edition of Flight Safety Detectives. John and I um, have been talking because most recently we uh, we watched the congressional hearings regarding the Boeing 737 MAX accident and the, the fact that uh, they had called uh, Dennis Mullenberg, who was the president and CEO of Boeing, along with the vice president of Boeing's commercial airplane group and the chief engineer, John Hamilton, up to answer questions regarding issues that were developed in the course of both the accident investigation with Lion Air and with uh, Ethiopia. So um, in watching that, John and I, of course, had uh, some opinions with regard to not only the actual hearings themselves, but the questions and some of the issues that were discussed and weren't discussed. And I think one of the, the biggest things, John, that I noticed from my perspective was, of course, that this was an emotionally charged two days of public hearing. As we have talked in the past, you know, everybody's always looking for accountability, somebody to point the finger at, the headhunting, who's going to take responsibility, who's going to be at fault. And it was evident that prior to these hearings happening, that that was going to be at least an underlying tone for the hearing. And of course, you could tell from both, uh, because one day was the Senate, the other day was the, the House and their representatives asking these questions. You could tell that the majority of folks on both sides, they were making statements. They were emotionally based. They were pontificating. They were pointing fingers and 
asking for people to be accountable rather than asking fact-finding questions to not only get more informative answers from from the CEO and from the chief engineer, but trying to get a, a reaction of who's going to pay for this. And of course, given the fact that everybody believes that MCAS was the initiating factor, it is the sole reason that these airplanes have crashed, they were on a hunt, I see it as a hunt, after the manufacturer, Boeing, rather than actually looking at the facts, conditions, and circumstances, especially in light of the fact that they all now have access to the NTSC, the National Transportation Safety Committee's uh, accident report on Lion Air 610. It's obvious to me they didn't digest it, they didn't process it, they didn't dissect the report and utilize the facts that were presented but rather went to the conclusions. And of course, the NTSC immediately pointed the finger at the MCAS system, the Maneuvering Characteristic Augmentation System, as the primary cause and contributing factor, to at least to Lion Air 610 crashing. When in fact, from an investigative standpoint, I sure don't see it that way. And I don't know about you, but I, I sure didn't see it that I way. And I don't see it that way either. I mean, I've read through the report. In the synopsis, in the conclusions that they reach, oftentimes are in conflict with the facts that are in the report. It's almost like the investigators put the facts together and probably put as much of it in as they could, given how politically charged this event is in Indonesia. And they've got as much into it into this report as they could. But then the people who did the analysis and wrote the conclusions barely even looked at it because there's a number of things that are overlooked. And the one that, that got me immediately was how they downplayed the role of maintenance yeah. when maintenance really gave these pilots an unairworthy aircraft for a long period of time. Could yeah. be as much as almost three weeks. Yes. And, uh, you know, they, that's almost non-existent in the conclusions, but it exists in the fact-finding piece. So it was ignored, gone once over lightly, and if there's one thing that has shown from this investigation, when you get the, the president of the airline or the uh, government officials to get up there and give the press a narrative, the press runs with that narrative. And that narrative has shown to be, in hindsight, based upon the report, be grossly error yeah. and grossly favorable to the authorities and to the airline. But yeah. the facts don't support the, the verbalization that was given by these people of uh, in positions of power. Yeah. So it, it's uh, been really unique. And I was surprised because, again, all of the uh, both the Senate and the House side representatives who asked the questions, they had access to this. They had staffers who I presume went through this report. But unlike you and I who are investigators, we, we detail every word that's written on that page, putting it in context, looking for what makes logical sense, what doesn't make logical sense, some of the issues, the, especially the biggest gaps where there was just a dropout of a lot of information that put things in context or information that was taken out of context. It's obvious to me that the congressional hearings did just that. They, they cherry-picked stuff that fit their personal agendas, used it to pontificate, to point fingers, to make statements, looking to hold people accountable. But there was no clarification in a lot of those questions. It was statements rather than clarify this for us. Show us exactly where this comes from, how this happened. And of course, because the focus was MCAS, 
And because everybody believes it was MCAS that caused these accidents, especially as the initiating factor, that's the way both of these these uh, two days of hearings went was we're going we're gonna to hit Boeing, we're going to hit them hard, we're going to hit the oversight, we're going to hit the certification. And a lot of those questions, they weren't uh, – both Dennis and, and John were not allowed because of constraints in time to be able to give a, a very logical, coherent answer to some of those questions, especially when it came to certification and oversight. Yeah, I don't think they wanted the comprehensive answers. In fact, I had a friend of mine who's, a, who's been a, a political, politically involved person in D.C. told me it was one of the best hearings for sound bites for re-election campaigns that he's seen in a while. That's sad. That is sad, but that's the state of affairs in Washington today. And how does that promote aviation safety? How does that move us forward? Well, I didn't see anything in that uh, those two hearings that move us forward at all. I mean, there was nothing new disclosed. It was all, as you call it, emotionally charged. And answers, you see, the politicians were grandstanding, yeah. and that, that's what politicians do. There was a few spots, Congressman Graves or Senator Graves, and, and uh, even Patty Murray had a couple of good questions, but she didn't pursue to the answers, to the end. And I think you and I are a little biased because working at the NTSB for as long as we did, and when we were holding our public hearings where we were calling witnesses, we were doing a fact-finding. Yes, some of the information was already known through other processes of investigation, but we were trying in a public forum to get clarification or ferret out additional information. And we had a different agenda as far as the time was concerned. We allowed witnesses to answer or present information. These public hearings, to me, for, uh, you know, I'm putting the president and CEO of Boeing up there and the chief engineer, where really each of the Congress people, you know, the senators and the, uh, and the congressmen had these five minutes limits, they spoke for four minutes and then said, asked a question that was going to take more than 45 seconds to answer. Well, that's the same boat the news, news organizations have put you and I in, yes. in and which has led to these podcasts. You can't explain these events in a soundbite. Yeah. You know, I'm tired of, of going in, on uh, nationwide news, network news, and uh, speaking for 20 minutes and get 30 seconds or less on TV trying to explain a complicated problem. These issues are complex. You cannot answer them in, you know, five words or less or 10 words or less or 30 seconds or less because they are taken out of context. You and I do provide a lot of information, yet they cherry pick, the, the media tends to cherry pick our comments to try and fit them into the story that they're putting out. And the problem is a lot of times it's taken out of context. And I think Congressman Graves from Missouri, who is an air, uh, airline transport pilot, uh, he holds that certificate. He understands that level of aviation. He understands that level of training. He understands the complexity of the aircraft. His focus was more about the aptitude of the pilots, the training of the pilots, what happens in other parts of the world to fly these types of machines, the fact that automation is the predominant factor in the operation of these machines. His questions, he did make some statements, but his questions were, you know, right on track. But, and, and there, like you said, there were others that asked some questions, but unfortunately, because of time constraints, you can't really get into the good stuff. The certification of an airplane cannot be answered or discussed in 30 seconds or 45 seconds or even a minute. I was taken back when, a few of them asked questions around the assumptions made during certification, but they steered clear of the assumptions made for the 
capabilities of the pilot who's coming into the airplane. Yeah. And they, you know, Boeing designs an airplane with the assumption that the person getting in the cockpit knows how to fly. There's a requisite level of skills, abilities, and knowledge. You don't design a 737 and expect that a student pilot with, you know, 100 hours of flight time is going to be flying that caliber of aircraft. Right. Not without a lot of training, a lot of experience, and not on-the-job experience. And that's evident in the Lion Air report that there was experience problems and qualification problems. When it comes to what actually came out of these two days of hearings, you know, people were pounding their fists. They were pointing their fingers. They want answers. They want action. What is it that they expected? They never really came out with their action plan as to what they expected Boeing to do. We know that there's changes being made to the MCAS system. We know that they're pointing the fingers and waiting to have the FAA come up on on the Hill as well to answer questions about how they certify aircraft, their regulatory oversight, their responsibility, their interaction. And I thought that some of the questions that went to Dennis Mullenberg about well, whether or not the FAA should take the whole certification process back and have just FAA employees being those certifying authorities within a manufacturer, I thought that was just a comment, a statement, and uh, you know, basically a softball-type question that wasn't well-researched. That was one of many because, one, you know as well as I that, one, it's going to take a heck of a big budget to make every employee that is now in a manufacturing facility, whether it's Boeing or anywhere else, make them an FAA employee, train them. Where are they going to get the expertise? The expertise comes from the manufacturer. And working on the pointy end, I mean, you're you're pushing technology. You're you're developing new systems. The FAA doesn't ever do that. They react. Yes. They don't think outside the box. And I, I saw a recent article that said that for the FAA to take over the certification process entirely would take an increase in their budget of at least $1.3 billion. That's what a B, billion. And that's assuming you can get people with good knowledge to come to work for government wages. Yes. Because in today's market, the people that are pushing the envelope in all the manufacturing areas are making a, a very good paycheck because it's it's go, go, go with technology. And, and when we were at the board, that was one of the problems of trying to lure people into the agency, whether it was the NTSB or any other agency. And that was, well, I'm making this amount of money on the outside. Why would I come? Why would I want to come to work for the government and take a pay cut? I mean, you're paying for that talent. And the talent currently resides with a high level of knowledge in these manufacturing facilities. You cannot just start a whole new cadre of inspectors. Where are you going to send them? You're going to send them to the manufacturer to get trained because the FAA doesn't have this knowledge. They're not building airplanes. They understand the certification basis. What is it expected that the manufacturer will build an aircraft to as far as certification standards? But they don't know everything there is to know about every nuance in that Boeing airplane. But if you've got a guy who works there, they have that background. They have that backstory information that will help them be a better overseer than somebody who comes off the street and says, we're going to make you an inspector. You're going to learn how to you know, inspect you know, the, the certification process or the build process of a Boeing airplane or a Cessna airplane or whatever. The other piece that came to my mind as I was watching the hearing about Congress is what hypocrites. 
because they have voted repeatedly over the years, many, many, many years, to push the delegation process further along. Yes. And they also, over many of those years, cut the funding to the FAA uh, for inspectors and and for in general personnel. And you bring up a good point, because for how many years have we have heard from various administrations, we're going to downsize the government, we're going to streamline the government, we're going to make them smaller. Well, now you're charging the FAA to grow by leaps and bounds and have to increase the budget and increase the size of that respective organization. Wait a minute here. <laughs> you, you can't have both. Yes, yes. You know, 9-11, law enforcement grew considerably. Our aviation budgets did not grow considerably. Yeah. And there's a lot of expectation in the fact that, okay, you know, again, I really still don't believe that the folks up on the Hill understand the delegation process. I heard a number of, of uh, I think it was a senator and a congressman, both refer to self-certification and as I believe Mullenberg and or John Hamilton tried to express, we have never self-certified. The system isn't set up for us to self-certify. Are there aspects of the build process and the design process by which we take it all the way up to basically the final stamp of approval? But someone from the FAA, whether it's actually from the organization themselves or through the delegated ODA process, that's the FAA's representative. They're the ones that final stamp it. Boeing doesn't say, okay, we think it's good to go. Let her rip. Right, right. The delegated person brings the completed paperwork to the FAA and in person usually and explains, asks any questions, delivers it, answers any questions about the certification process. So the FAA has a role right at the very end. Now, it can be said that at the very end, the FAA may not know all the ins and outs of the system. And I believe that's probably true in some cases because they can't. They're not touching it every day. Yes. And they have to rely upon the person who, who they designate to be upstanding citizens, so to speak, and to bring them to the true and accurate story for certification. The experience in the past has been those persons have done exactly that. So I don't think it has changed overnight. It's a very technical process. The FAA did their job. Maybe not as good as they could have. We've got to get to see what, what's going to come out of that. But the process itself is a product of Congress. Congress has created it, has actually pushed for the delegation, and reflected it in the budgets of the, the FAA and, and others. And it's not just Boeing. Every airplane manufacturer in the United States and many around the world have delegation authority. Exactly. Because the FAA can't even travel. I can remember uh, having an out-and-out ban on any foreign travel for the FAA. Yes. A, a total total ban. How in the heck can they do their job in visiting all these foreign manufacturers and the foreign repair stations when they don't have a budget and they don't have approval to go visit them? And I remember when we were doing the ATR-72 investigation that I was in charge of in Roselawn, Indiana. One of the things we found during the certification of the ATR, especially when it came to icing issues with that particular airplane, is that issues between the foreign authority in France, the DGAC, 
and the FAA were being handled through white papers. That is, they were issuing papers. The FAA would review it and determine whether or not that was going to meet the airworthiness and the certification criteria here in the United States. They never physically looked at the airplane. They were reading it in technical papers and then approving certain aspects of it through those white paper reviews. And when you look at it, it does get complex. And there are things that can be done using that method versus, you know, actually touching and seeing. And when it came to MCAS, this was software. This is not a system. It is just software that causes the air, the, uh, air data computers and the flight control computers to react to certain inputs that are commanded through this MCAS software. And unfortunately, listening to the folks up on the Hill ask questions, they still didn't understand it. They had a misunderstanding of how it operated, when it operated, and then to really, without any factual basis, stand up and point the finger and say, you intentionally concealed information from the FAA. Well, if that's the case, if they were listening to other folks that were asking questions, and I don't remember the representative who asked the question, but she brought up, well, the Brazilians knew about MCAS because they wanted to make it part of training. Well, if this information was concealed from the FAA and others, then how is it that the Brazilians knew about MCAS and wanted to incorporate that as part of their training program for their pilots? That makes no sense. Because if it's hidden and it's concealed and it's not available, then why do the Brazilians know about it? And this isn't after the fact. This is just before it. Yeah. This was before it. So how... How is that? And I still don't have an, a, an answer from anybody, you know, as far as where that information came from, how they had it, how they were going to incorporate it, and why the rest of the world didn't have it. Well, I think there's a lot of people playing ostrich and putting their head in the sand. Yeah. And again, I mean, these were opportunities to at least you had two folks. Now, in listening to some of the answers by uh, Dennis Muhlenberg, I felt that he wasn't well prepared to answer a lot of questions that had been played out in the media with regard to the development history and other, you know, trends and, and history of the certification of the aircraft and, and the evolution and that kind of stuff, given the fact that his background, he's been with Boeing for a long time. But he's not an engineer. Yeah. Right. He's running the business of Boeing. Right? And they allowed him to have one person up there with him, John. Hamilton, yeah, yeah, and uh, he really needed to have two or three or four persons with knowledge of these systems and where they overlap and the outcomes expected of them so that they could answer those questions and, and completely, but it, it at least on the surface seems like they didn't want complete answers. They wanted sound bites. Exactly. I mean, it was sound bite after sound bite after sound bite. The thing that, again, struck me was when people were making statements like it was factual that the MCAS system took command of the airplane. The system, this MCAS software, takes command of the aircraft from the pilot. And that is absolutely not true. Does it input trim? Yes. Does it cause the nose to go down? Yes. But the pilot can stop all of that by interrupting it with either the trigger switch that's on the control yoke or turn the system off turn that, you know, the MCAS system, which is part of the, the speed trim system, by hitting the stab cutout switches. So the pilot isn't helpless anymore. I mean, the pilot has control. Unlike an Airbus, 
which is fully computer controlled. And as we've learned through various accidents, the computer does in fact lock the pilot out and does take control of the airplane. They're two different philosophies. In the case of uh, Lion Air, while the captain was flying the airplane, he was able to keep control of the MCAS and the train yes. system. Yes. But as soon as he turned it over to the first officer, because he was going to try to do something else in the cockpit, which is not stated what what he was trying to do. But the first officer up to that point wasn't much help. He turned it over to him to fly the airplane so he could then get in and into the uh, abnormal checklist and, and try to accomplish something. Then it went out of control. The first officer didn't have the same uh, knowledge of the, how the system worked. Even though they didn't know about MCAS, the captain clearly knew about runaway trim, and he yes. was managing runaway trim. And he was. He was managing that aspect of it. Call it runaway trim, call it MCAS. He had that airplane controlled, and it was that transition, and you and I are going to get into that in a future show. But when we look at what's the call to action, I didn't get anything other than the fact that there were families in the audience, family members in the audience. I know that the majority of these folks, you could tell by their statements, by their fist you know, banging and their finger pointing, that this was theatrics for the families and, and the public. But the substance was very minimal, and this was a good opportunity to at least enlighten how the system works as far as certification, how MCAS was developed, why it was developed. There is a misperception, a misconception that has played out basically since MCAS was known, and that is is that people believe that MCAS was put on the airplane because of this pitch-up tendency that the airplane had because they had to move the engines forward because it's a different uh, wing design, different engine design, and that by moving the engines forward, it created this enormous pitch-up that, you know, the pilots couldn't necessarily control when they were manually flying. And as you and I have found out, that is simply not the case. MCAS was not put on there for that reason. It's interesting. I want to go back to what you just said to clarify something for the audience. When you talked about what Congress had done with the family members being in the audience, yes, we're not pulling that sta statement out of the air. I agree with Greg with that. We're not pulling it out of the air. I Over many, many years, we have seen that same scenario play out after major accidents. Suddenly, there's this, this level of concern from the Hill and all sorts of statements being made that have no basis in fact, but they have an emotional basis with the family members that are present, are concerned and reading about it from home. So it's almost like, yeah, we're going to do something. We're doing this. We're doing that. We're making a lot of noise. And I'll see you in three years because I'm not going to do anything else. Look what happened with Buffalo, with Continental Express. Congress stuck their nose in the middle of it, started to pound their fists saying 1,500-hour minimum flight time for, for new pilots in commercial operations because we think that this is going to save the day. It hasn't saved the day. You and I are still working. You and <laughs> yes. I are still working looking at accidents with pilots that have well over 1,500 hours in commercial operation. And in fact, if you look at this Lion Air crew, you know, they both had more than 1,500 hours of flight time, and that didn't seem to do anything. And, of course, people are going to say, well, that's because MCAS, you know, caused this accident that took the control away from the pilots. And when you and I do our next podcast where we dissect all the elements, we are going to show the public that MCAS had no real involvement until the very end. But by then, the accident sequence had already been set up. And that's, uh, that's what we're going to do. We're going to dissect the maintenance aspects 
first, because you and I, I think, are both of the same mind that that's really where this accident sequence started, was well before the day of the accident, when this airplane was on the ground and flying in various parts of, of Indonesia and, and China, back in the early parts of October, and had systemic issues that were never really fixed. Right, October 9th, in the factual part of the report, October 9th is when they start to talk about it. That doesn't mean that was the initiating. It may have been occurring before that. That's the only one that's information is out in the open. Yeah. The accident occurred on October 29th. So there was 20 days of time that lapsed where it's clear that the problems that were written up on the 9th of October still existed. The airplane was still flying uh, before it crashed. Those are the kinds of things, and, and of course the listening audience is going to hear us dissect all of those. But that's the basis for the questions that should have been asked up on the Hill. You have a technical guy and you have a business guy who are there to answer questions. So you want to get the business understanding. Now, of course, the whole storyline has continued to play out that they were in competition with Airbus and that they were racing to the finish line. And so they were shortcutting processes and, and certification and, and all that kind of thing. I have yet to see how that bear, you know, bore out only because this airplane was in development and certification for five years. The other thing is EASA was involved. They're one of the biggest guys who are pushing back right now, but they were involved from from day one. And nobody picked up on the fact, nobody asked the questions, how many of the airlines, I know there was a big, long discussion about the fact that the AOA comparator, that is because these two uh, angle of attack indicators operate independently, why didn't they talk to each other? Because MCAS was dependent on only one at a time rather than both to see which one would be more reliable. The fact is, is that with this AOA comparator, or at least the reference on the PFD for the pilots, only 20% of the airlines who were provided that option took the option, and Lion Air wasn't one of them. Now, if these folks are all so high and mighty and worried about aviation safety, then all they had to do was negotiate into the price of all the multiple airplanes they're buying. Hey, put this system on at no cost. I know it's optional. Great. Add that option, but don't charge me. It's like going out and negotiating the price of a car for a better radio. The fact is, is that 20% of those airlines who understood the system chose to put it on the airplane. The rest of them didn't. Why not? Because it costs money? Well, now all of a sudden you're putting a price on safety. And, of course, they put this back. Well, Boeing should have known. They should have just put it on. Even if that's the case, in the interest of aviation safety, why didn't you spend the money? Why didn't you negotiate that into the price of the airplane? Why didn't you do your part to at least provide all the tools for operating at the highest levels of safety. Nobody's talked about that. Nobody's questioned that. And their pilots get to fly them long before they buy them because as part of the buying process, they'll bring the airplane to you or you can come to Seattle and fly it. Yeah, and if they're made aware of that, they're doing a systems analysis before they buy that airplane. And if this is, okay, yeah, the airplane does have this system available as an option. Hey, Charlie, do you think we should put it on? Hey, Bill, do you think we should put it on? Apparently, somebody at Lion Air decided they didn't need it. Well, guess what? You yeah, know? And did. now, when they do need it, they're not pointing the finger at themselves. They're pointing it elsewhere. And one of the things that drives decisions like that can be the reliability of the components involved. And the reliability of an angle of attack transducer, the piece that we're talking about on the front of the airplane, is about one failure in 9 million flights. I mean, that's a staggering 
staggering reliability number. And you bring up a good point because nobody's really focused on, well, first off, that AOA vane or transducer is not manufactured by Boeing. It was manufactured by Rosemount, which was the original company, but was originally or then uh, subsequently bought out by Collins. What was the certification criteria for just that AOA vane outside of the total certification for the airplane? Because they, too, have to meet some sort of certification criteria for failure rates for that piece of equipment that's going to be installed on another piece of equipment, and in this case, the 7.3. Nobody's talked about that company. Nobody's talked about the reliability of that probe. Nobody's talked about what probe, or at least what the manufacturer of that probe, what their role was in this whole accident sequence. And what the role of the repair station, who overhauled the unit that was eventually installed. Now, we talk about that a lot in the upcoming maintenance segment of it. But yeah. there's, there's another piece of the puzzle where non-Boeing personnel made a repair to a piece, a component that was going to go on a Boeing airplane, go on anybody's airplane. And what happens? And see, that's why I expected the folks up on the hill when they were asking questions. You know, as you and I are going to talk about in this in this uh, podcast about the maintenance section, Boeing has field service representatives. I would have expected that. Wait a minute here. If I have to buy a part as an operator called an AOA vane, why did they go to a third party? Why didn't they go back to Boeing? The airplane is under <laughs> under warranty. Why don't you just go back and talk to their field service reps and go, hey, we need an AOA vane. Can you get us an AOA vane or an uh, AOA transducer? Why did they go outside that? Why not go right to the manufacturer so you know you've got a brand new part, not an overhauled part that's gone through generations? And But the fact is, those kinds of questions were never asked of two folks that could have answered or at least tried to provide, hey, we, we support these airplanes all over the world. They didn't come to us. If they'd come to us, we would have, of course, supported them, whatever they needed. Those are the types of questions. That's the type of information. This report doesn't talk about anything like that. Yeah, so the time between October 29th when the accident occurred and looking back to October 9th where we know that there was logbook items generated, maintenance items generated around the system, those 20 days roughly, did they reach out to Boeing? Did they reach out to Boeing's technical staff? asking for help yeah you know like you said boeing has offices all over the world they have a whole bunch of people in china i know because i've been going to china uh, for several years now and i've actually crossed paths with them and uh, talked to them i see them in the hotels in shanghai i was sitting in a hotel and talked to to a couple of uh, manufacturers different manufacturers that were staying in the same hotel yeah. And you and I talked about this uh, at one time as well. I was disappointed because after Mullenberg and, and Hamilton were done, the chairman of the NTSB provided some information. They provided information in the first hearing as well. And nobody's questioning the quality of this report with regard to how it was conducted in accordance or at least in symmetry with IKO Annex 13, which is standards and practices for conducting acts investigation. If you read the report and you see what we see, there are a lot of disjointed, fragmented failures in the presentation of all of the facts, conditions, and circumstances. They don't provide an actual transcript. They provide summaries. The summaries of the transcript for the cockpit voice recorder are substantially different than the summary that's later in the report. There's a lot of missing information. There's no oversight information as far as where the regulator is in all of this, as far as the DGAC or their version of the FAA 
in their oversight responsibilities, training and all sorts of things. And, and again, you would think that at least the legislators, the, the people up there that are asking these questions that are responsible would have at least done some homework to ask those types of questions to folks that are up there that could provide that level of technical expertise, especially when it comes to what do you think the process of acts investigation was to the chairman of the NTSB? We know, you and I know firsthand that it wasn't conducted in, in accordance with IKO Annex Many, 13. many gaps, many gaps. And we know that Ethiopia is the same way, yet nobody wants to address those issues. You know, that's the politics of accidents where you don't want to, you know, go after another country. The State Department, I'm sure, would have say something to say about the amount of criticism doled out to foreign countries. They like to control that. That's their turf, so to speak. But it's not in the interest of aviation safety. The facts are the facts, John. I mean, that's where we learn. That's where we get better. You have to get the facts. Yeah. When I look at the maintenance findings and reports, and again, we're going to talk about this, right? They they go once over lightly on the areas where they are, in fact, have a problem with what they did. Yeah. They go once over lightly. And it's even more evident the fact that they didn't identify those people that touched that airplane throughout that, that period of time you were talking about. They never talk about those folks. They never talk about their training, their qualifications, their responsibilities, their oversight of the airline. They don't discuss any of that. And those are critical elements in furthering aviation safety, because if you have a deficiency in a process or a procedure or oversight with the organization, you got to take corrective action or at least get somebody that can take corrective action. Yes. Well, we're going to go into that maintenance, yeah. that detail in the maintenance shortcomings in the podcast that will be coming out very soon. Yeah. Well, wrapping up, I was just disappointed in these hearings, similar to my disappointment with the previous hearings, because you had a lot of people who were basically making emotionally charged or emotionally based statements and making demands or making assertions that necessarily weren't based on fact and leaving the, the public with, I think, the wrong impression. And this report uses that type of, uh, at least, background, again, to leave the wrong impression. If you read this report, and I see it on Facebook, and I've heard it on other people's podcasts, that they think this is a great report. From a technical standpoint, there are so many gaps, so many unanswered questions, so many areas where people or organizations are not held accountable. And the sequence of events that caused this particular accident, and I'm sure with Ethiopia, is not properly sequenced. They start with MCAS and work backwards. And you, MCAS was not the initiating factor. They've demonstrated it. The NTSC has demonstrated it in their own writing. Well, it's going to be interesting to see uh, where Congress goes with it, if they go anywhere at all. Uh, but it's disappointing. You know, I guess it's part of it is perspective. You and I have the perspective of get all the facts and make things better. And I don't know that they share that perspective on the Hill. Well, it would be nice if they got some technically qualified people to at least give them some guidance, give them assistance. Oh, I'm sorry. You and I tried to do that and they ignored us because we were talking facts that aren't sexy. They were talking emotional stuff that they think is a sexy soundbite. And, and that's the travesty of this because yep. in those comments, in those assertions, in those statements, where have they furthered aviation safety? No, that's that nowhere. It's just more frustration for guys like you and I. Yeah. And there's a bunch of us out there scattered around and 
He's constantly trying to train the news media into what's important and what's not important. And then to go up on the hill and talk to a bunch of staffers, that yes. you have to explain which end of the airplane goes first. Yes. And they're going to be setting the, the questions and, the, and help to guide the policy of the country. Or just like we've seen in the report, they filter stuff. And yes. this report has a lot of filtered information. It's obvious. There's so many big gaps that there's no logical bridge between one set of facts that they talk about and then another set of facts, yet they draw a conclusion and indict a system or, or software or whatever, but there's no logical way to get to their conclusion. <laughs> yeah, they never indict their own FAA. They never indict the maintenance organization. Yeah. In the case of Ethiopia, uh, their pilots were trained, but yet the facts say otherwise. Yep. And we're going to be talking about all of that. John and I, uh, again, we, we always appreciate the feedback that we get from our listeners. We know that not everybody agrees with where we're coming from, and that is fine with us. We try to bring a level of expertise and knowledge, and through the folks that we've made relationships with and have relationships with throughout the years who give us good factual information. Yes, John and I, we are very opinionated about certain things, but those opinions are well-founded based on fact. And we always appreciate the feedback from you, the listener, through our uh, website and through our, uh, our email, flightsafetydetectives at gmail.com. That's how we get your feedback, your interest, what you want us to cover, what you want us to talk about. Of course, even we've had a couple of questions of clarification. Hey, you talked about this, so we've tried to address those in podcasts. So we really appreciate your feedback. We continue to encourage your feedback. The show evolves. John and I are unscripted. <laughs> this is uh, nobody writes a script. John and I put some softball questions out in the middle of the table. We pick it up and run with it because we think that these are topics that need to be discussed, issues that need to be discussed. Um, we are going to be delving into a variety of other issues in future podcasts with women in aviation and some of the issues they face in the aviation industry. Uh, we're also going to be diving dissecting other accidents. But unfortunately, the 737 MAX, because of its high visibility, the fact that uh, it still has not been returned to service, those continue to be the, uh, the top of the list issues that we're discussing. We're trying to provide clarity. We're trying to ferret out fact from fiction because there's still a lot of fiction and misinterpretation, misunderstanding, misperception that resides out there, and we're trying to bring some clarity to it. We are not in defense of Boeing. We are just trying to point out fair and objective that whether it's a Boeing airplane, an Airbus, a Cessna, an Embraer, it doesn't matter. If a manufacturer is in the same position, taking the same scrutiny by people who don't understand the process, then we'll defend whoever as far as the process is concerned, not any one organization. You know, and what's been overlooked by much of the press is the fact that the, the MAX is still flying. It's not flying commercially. It's flying privately. Boeing has updated the software for the MCAS system, and they have flown over a 1,000 hours in the air with assorted pilots yeah. checking out the system the control of the system, did they, in fact, fix it? And I've also heard that they've got some 1,500 hours just flying the airplane. Yep, and I think Dennis Mullenberg said in his testimony that, in fact, he flew on two of those flights. So we know that the airplane is going through this recertification, if you will, to get back in the air for a return to service. The airplane, the software, it is software, software, software. And 
and, and again, until people really understand that this software does not take over control of the airplane, but in fact is supposed to work in concert with the pilot. It has now been changed. That part of the software has been dumbed down. It's not as aggressive as it used to be. It's actually rather passive now. It gives one, one alert, basically, to the pilot with an expectation of, okay, we've warned you. Now you do something as a pilot to correct this bad situation, as well as now putting in this comparator so that you don't have the uncommanded or miscommanded activation of this safety system that people have deemed as a safety system of mass destruction. It is not that, in my book, it is not that characterization. One of my takeaways in looking at the corrections was the fact that it gives the warning to the pilot, but if he doesn't act on it in a matter of second, it'll shut the system down. Yes. And the other thing that is lost on a lot of people, notably because of the press and including the press, is the fact that the airplane is designed to fly manually. Yeah. It's designed to fly with absolutely no automation, yes. with a pilot that knows how to fly. I think in the beginning of this podcast, I said that about Boeing makes the assumption that when you get into the cockpit, you know how to fly. Well, that's part of the reason. It is designed to fly with absolutely no automation, but it requires a pilot that knows how to fly. And understands what aviation is all about. You know, but, and, and again, one of the procedures, and we're going to dissect it in uh, one of the future podcasts about the operation of the airplane, was unreliable airspeed. It tells you, basically, you're going to use visual cues. You're going to hand fly the airplane. You're going to use pitch and power settings because if you don't have reliable airspeed, you can still fly the airplane. If you have a certain power setting, you have a certain pitch setting, you're going to have a certain speed. All of these things, that's what being a pilot is all about. It's not about just pushing a button, you know, pointing the air airplane in the direction you want it to go and hope for the best. It doesn't work that way. And so you and I are going to have a field day in the future with some of our podcast and, and what we think of the report and some of the facts, not the fiction, the facts that are presented in these reports. Well, we've, uh, we've worn out our, our welcome again. <laughs> um, <laughs> You know, John and I uh, are very passionate about what we do. We hope that you get that passion, but you understand where we're coming from to try and at least identify those issues and those questions that, you know, folks are, you know, either not thinking of or, or are afraid to ask. We're going to ask those questions. We're going to point the finger. We're going to demand as our action call answers to some of these questions. And, and that's what we're trying to do. And we always appreciate the fact that uh, you are listening and you are giving us your feedback. So again, Stay tuned because future podcasts, they're going to get better as far as us talking about a variety of new subjects and new issues that we see happening in aviation. And as I have said before, and I think I'm going to start saying this every time, we live within a very good aviation system. If you look at the accident rate, not only here in the United States, which has been almost perfect for 10 years, uh, but it's pretty low in other areas of the world where it never was low. Right. One of the things that we have in aviation is that if we put our troubles out in the open, put them on the table, so to speak, we address them. We mitigate them in some form. We just don't leave them there and let them fester. And that's different than some other industries. And to that regard, we are very good at fixing our problems. You know, when I think about, well, I've been in this business for a long time. I think about accidents that go back into the 50s and 60s where we had material failure routinely, structure of the airplane that would fail. 
When was the last time you saw the structure of the airplane fail? It doesn't happen anymore. We've engineered it out. And even when we've had some small uh, blowouts, like there was a couple on 737s for Southwest. And we currently have a cracking issue with some airplanes. We have inspection processes that were already in place to find this stuff. On the fuselage, we have damage-tolerant fuselages, which means that if you have a failure in a section of the fuselage, it is, by design, not allowed to go past certain points. So a simple way of saying it is if you have a fuselage that's made of aluminum that's 30 thousandths of an inch thick, which is typical 32 thousandths aluminum, it can travel for a foot or two, but then it's going to run into a piece that's 40, 50, or 60 thousandths deep, and that's going to stop it. That's the design engineering of containing those types of potential failures. Software is a new evolution. I mean, we've been with all of the automated cockpits for a long time, but we're adding new software and new new capabilities to this automation all the time. Yes, there's going to be issues. Yes, we're going to identify them. Yes, we're going to remedy them. But, you know, to indict something immediately and say that's the cause of the accident, when you look at it in a perfect world and, and looking at it in the sequence of a events. You have to look at that totally separate from all the emotion. Look at it factually. And when you look at it factually, like you talk about, the fact is, is that these airplanes are designed and we have learned these lessons over the years from the 40s, the 50s, the 60s, the 70s to design the safest aircraft in the world, not only here in the United States, but around the world. With that being said, I will wrap it up for myself my colleague, my partner in crime, if you will, John Golia. So with that, thanks for listening. Fly safe. To listen to more episodes of the show, go to flightsafetydetectives.com or the Professional Aviation Maintenance Association at pama.org and wherever you find your favorite podcasts. Catch us next time when John Golia and Greg Fife talk about all things aviation. Thanks for listening.